All right, something about that song, I just got out of breath after singing it. I don't know, maybe I shouldn't go to the gym again. I don't know, but <laughs> just give me one second here to get set up. Once again, good morning. It's nice to see everybody here this morning. And I, I debated whether to start this way, so I will. I want to say, he is risen. Yeah, amen. Just in case you weren't here last Sunday, Jesus is still risen. If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to the Gospel of John, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We'll be continuing our series throughout John's Gospel, and we'll be in John chapter 1, and we'll start at verse 35 in a few seconds. And hopefully you're there as you're turning there. There's a theologian whose name is Diedrich Bonhoeffer. I don't know if you've ever heard of him before. has a pretty fancy name. Um, but he's always fascinated me. I heard about him in college when my fellow classmates had to do a project on theologians. I got Martin Luther, uh, not Martin Luther King Jr., but Martin Luther. And one of my friends got Diedrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German theologian, a German pastor. He was also an author. And he lived in Nazi Germany during the 1940s. And as the German government was being overtaken by Nazis, Bonhoeffer was a key founding member of something called the Confessing Church which was a Protestant movement within Nazi Germany that arose in opposition to the government of the injustices and evil and killings that were happening. And interestingly enough, last Sunday, April 9th, in 1945, the same day, April 9th, 1945, Bonhoeffer was executed by public hanging for a conspiracy for a failed assassination attempt of Adolf Hitler. And in college, I got into the whole debate of should Christians be planning to murder people? So, so that's why it fascinated me, just this theologian. But I thought it was interesting that 78 years ago, from Resurrection Sunday last week, Diedrich Bonhoeffer was executed. He has a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And I'll be honest with you, I tried to read it a few months ago. It's one of those books that you can't have any distractions, you can't have any noise. If the clock is ticking, you have to take the battery out. Because he's such a, a, a dense writer in a good way where he's very intellectual, and it takes me a while to read his pages. I got about three or four, actually 30 pages in. I got highlights here. 30 pages in, and it was a lot. I had to take a break from it, um, just because it was such deep theology. But there's a really well-known quote that he has in the book. I'm going to give you a little bit of the context of the, the quote around it, and then I'll tell you what the quote is. This is what he says in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He says, The cross is laid on every Christian, the first Christ-suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. And here's the quote. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death of that like the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow Jesus, or it may be like the death of Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world, but it is the same death every time, death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. So again, that's Diedrich Bonhoeffer, the cost of discipleship. And according to what he's saying in that quote, He's saying that when we come to Christ, it's a call to die. 
And he's saying it's a call to first die to the world that's around us. We, we die to the ways of the culture. We should not be living and looking like the culture around us, but rather die to it and follow Christ. It's a call to die to ourselves. We let go of ourselves being the lead of our life, being in control of our own lives, and we surrender it to Jesus. We let go of our sinful pride, our ego, our arrogance. It's a call to surrender ourselves fully to Jesus and his death on the cross. And Paul in Romans chapter 6, he'll put it this way. And we usually read this verse when we have baptisms because it mentions baptism. But this is what Paul says in in a couple of verses in Romans chapter 6. He says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He's answering a question right now because he's saying, don't use the grace of God as a license or liberty to keep sinning. You shouldn't say, oh, I'm going to sin today because I know I can pray for forgiveness. He's saying, don't do that. He says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in the Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. And for Christians, this is our call as we follow Jesus, to walk in the newness of life to which Jesus has called us to. As we continue our series through John's Gospel, we're going to be reading a passage of Scripture that if I'm being honest with you, I probably would just overlook it and say, that's nice. I I probably wouldn't devote a whole sermon to it because it's not a very seemingly interesting or or, or crazy type of story in in John's gospel. But the beauty of preaching the whole Bible through, verse by verse, is that you see the depth and the encouragement and the love of Christ throughout every verse. So this morning, I don't expect you to leave here being like, oh my gosh, the sermon blew my mind. I I didn't know this was in the Bible. But I think it'll serve as an encouragement as we continue through John's gospel. And I want to say this. There's a lot of different avenues to go down as we look in God's word. We can go to the super, super deep deep doctrines of theology, or we can do surface level. And and, and I'm not saying those are are bad or good, but what I'm saying is I, I plan on staying on a highway throughout John's gospel and answering this question, who is Jesus and so what? Who is Jesus and what should we be doing in light of who Jesus is? So as I go through some maybe deep doctrine, maybe not deep doctrine, maybe it's more simplistic things, it's the same hopefully goal of what I want to go through, staying on that highway, not going down different avenues and exits and shortcuts, but staying on this who is Jesus and so what? What are we supposed to do based on who Jesus is? So John chapter 1, as a little reminder, the first 18 verses are called the prologue. It's there where John, the author of his gospel, he has deep theological doctrine as to who Jesus Christ is. He calls Jesus the eternal word of God, that Jesus is God, and we look at the incarnation of Jesus, that Jesus Christ was both fully, truly God and fully, truly man. And then we move on from that, and now John, the author, he tells us about the testimony of John the Baptist who will support his claim that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So on Palm Sunday, we looked at the testimony of John the Baptist, how he revealed that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the one, the Lamb of God, who will take away the sin of the world. And now we're going to get to verse 35. It's called, Jesus Calls the First Disciples. That's the name of the sermon. That's what's in my Bible as a subheading here. 
we're going to see another set of people's testimonies as to who Jesus is. So John, the author, is setting up, here's Jesus, here are people whose testimonies proof, are proof to the claim of who Jesus is, that Jesus is the Messiah. As we go through these next verses, we're going to see a couple of different disciples who encounter Jesus. If you have your notes, I've, I've organized them in such a way that hopefully it's not information overload and you won't get confused by the different names. But number one, we're going to see John and Andrew. Number two, we'll see Simon Peter. Number three, we'll see Philip. And number four, we'll see Nathaniel. So John chapter 1, I'll start reading at verse 35, and we're going to see John and Andrew. The next day, again, John the Baptist was standing with his disciples, two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Jesus said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So now we're getting to day three of John the Baptist's testimony of Jesus. If you remember, on day one, the Jews are sent to John the Baptist by the Pharisees to question him. They say, John, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? He says, no. They say, okay, are you Elijah? He says, no. They say, are you the prophet? He says, no. And they finally say, well, then who are you? And that they're really we're getting as John, who or what gives you the authority to preach as you're preaching and to baptize the Jews as you're baptizing them? And then in day two, we see that now Jesus comes onto the scene. Right? John the Baptist says, I'm, I'm no one. I'm one voice who's crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. He's saying, I'm no one, but I point to someone who's more important, the most important one, the Messiah. And now we get to day two, and we see that Jesus walks onto the scene here, and John the Baptist points at Jesus, looks at him, and says, this is him. This is the Lamb of God. This is the Messiah. Now we get to day three. John the Baptist is with his two disciples, and again he sees Jesus, and again proclaims Jesus as the Lamb of God. And what happens is two of John's disciples, they stop following him, and they follow Jesus. They're following Jesus. And we see that Jesus sees these disciples following him, and he turns to them, and we see Jesus take the initiative first and say to them, what are you seeking, in verse 38. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, who are you seeking or of whom are you looking for? But rather, he says, what are you looking for? What do you want to know? And these two disciples, they respond to Jesus' question with not an answer, but another question. They ask him, Jesus, where are you staying? And by asking this to Jesus, these two disciples are showing their desire to have a longer conversation with Jesus rather than just some roadside meeting where they're at. They want to spend the evening with Jesus, the proclaimed Messiah, right? John the Baptist, their master, said, this is the Messiah. This is the one we've been waiting for. So the disciples want to what? They want to go to Jesus, and they want to question. They want to see if he is the Messiah. They're looking for an invitation from Jesus to follow him. And in verse 39, we see that Jesus offers that invitation. He says, come and you will see. 
So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. So as the day was drawing to a close, it was about four o'clock in the afternoon, we see Jesus inviting these two disciples to spend the evening with him. Now, we don't know what questions they asked. I don't know what Jesus revealed about himself or maybe showed signs and wonders. We don't know. We just know what John records in his gospel. But we see that in the next verse, one of the disciples is named, and his name's Andrew. He's convinced that after this time with Jesus, that Jesus is the Messiah. The other disciple is, again, he's believed to be John. And you could ask me after the sermon how we've come to that conclusion. But uh, both John and Andrew are seeking Jesus, and Jesus invites them to come to him. And after this conversation, again, verse 40 to 41, it says, One of the two who heard John the Baptist speak followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. So after John and Andrew meet with Jesus, they talk with Jesus, they're convinced that Jesus is the proclaimed Messiah, the Lamb of God, that John the Baptist pointed to. And we read that Andrew did what? The first thing he did was he ran and he told his brother, Simon. He told his brother. It's also believed, again, it's not in the text here, so I'll step away this way for imagery, right? It's believed that John at this point also went and told his brother, James, as well, that they found the Messiah, and as Christians, as we look at, at Andrew and John, our calling is to put our faith in Jesus. We're invited to come to him and to follow him as the Lord of our life and the Savior of the world. Our faith in Christ will lead us to following him, as we've seen with Andrew and John. They continue to follow Jesus. And this is important to say, as Christians, we're all saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Saying a prayer doesn't save you. Coming to church does not save you. Being a good person does not save you. Donating millions or billions of dollars to charity does not save you. Those are all good things, but none of them save you. The Bible is clear that we're saved by Jesus Christ's death on the cross and our faith alone in who Jesus is as our Lord and our Savior. And we're called to live in faith and to follow Jesus with our whole lives. And as we follow him, our love for him should overflow out of our hearts and into our lives into telling others about him. If you look at what Andrew does, he what? He learns who Jesus is. In his excitement, he goes and tells his brother. We'll see in a little bit, Philip does the same thing to Nathaniel. There's a pattern. Again, as we follow Jesus, we should be encouraged we should be excited joyful joy filled to overflow out and to tell others about him not to make us feel good not to fill the church pews but to what invite them to seek the lord and to examine the scriptures and come to know jesus as their lord and savior because they have an eternal soul that matters a little story and and, and christine's my witness so she can back me up i'm not making this up on palm sunday my my seven-year-old niece came up to me and for whatever reason, I can't remember, she said, Uncle David, Uncle David, I'm a Christian too. Like all excited. I'm like, that's great. I said, that, that's amazing. I said, what does that mean? I was, I was kind of testing her a little bit just to see. And she says, it means that I love Jesus and I want to follow Jesus. And I was like, yes, preach, amen, that's it. And then I said, I brought a little further. I said, and what did Jesus do for you? 
what did he do for everybody? And she said, he died on the cross for my sins. And I'm like, okay, all right, okay. And I asked her, and what did he do three days later? And she said, he rose again from the grave. And I was like, yes, she gets it. And it just reminded me that we're called to have childlike faith, not childish faith, childlike faith. The gospel is simple. There's no, we, we shouldn't complicate it. The gospel is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and three days later rose again from the dead. And if you claim to be a Christian, that's what your faith and your trust and your belief is in Jesus, and he's the Lord of your life. You follow him. Again, the gospel is simple, but the call to follow Jesus is costly. As we read at Diedrich Bonhoeffer, it costs us sometimes. Most of the time, it costs us what? Our culture. We go against the culture. We go against the way of the world. It might cost us relationships. It might cost us friends. But I want to encourage us, it's worth it. It's worth it. And getting back to Andrew, interestingly enough, Andrew's really not mentioned a lot throughout the Bible. In John's Gospel, he's mentioned two more times. He seemingly lived in Peter's shadow. And I'll say this, he was fine with it. He didn't complain he, didn't, he wasn't envious or jealous of Peter. He was fine. He delighted in following Jesus, even if that meant that Peter was in Jesus' inner circle, that Peter was, was seemingly more popular than Andrew in the early church days. In two places in John's Gospel, we see Andrew's heart to what? To bridge the gap, to bring people to Jesus or to bring Jesus to people. In John chapter 6, before Jesus is about to multiply the food to feed the crowd of 5,000 people, it's, we read in, in verse 8 and 9 that Andrew brings to Jesus a boy who has five loaves of bread and two fish. Because Jesus is saying, how we, basically, how are we going to feed these people? And then Andrew says, I got someone, Jesus. And he brings the boy to Jesus. I, I just love Andrew's heart in that. A little later, after the triumphant entry of Jesus in Jerusalem, in John chapter 12, verse 22, Andrew, we read that a bunch of Greeks were wanting to see and meet Jesus, and Andrew bridges that relational gap. He brings Jesus to these Greeks that are desiring to see and to know him. So as we continue to study God's word, as we hopefully grow in our faith, our love, our obedience, our joy, we should also be reaching out to the lost, sharing the gospel, sharing the good news of the gospel of who Jesus is with everybody. And I've said this with youth group, and I want to repeat it here. One of the only things that we can do here on earth that we can't do in heaven is tell people about Jesus. There's no lost souls in heaven. There's no sinners in heaven. There's no sin in heaven. There's no need to evangelize in heaven. Once we die, the Bible says there's no second chance. There's no second chance to repent and to follow Jesus. It's too late. We either spend an eternity with Jesus in a relationship with him in a place, a real physical place called heaven, or if you don't know Jesus, you spend an eternity without Jesus in a literal physical place called hell. That's why it matters. Our mission is twofold. Follow Jesus and go out and tell others about Jesus. And as we've been building this, right, in order to tell others about Jesus, we have to know Jesus. We have to get Jesus right. We better make sure when we tell people about Jesus, it's the Jesus that's revealed in Scripture. The, that's the only Jesus who can save us. The only one that's worthy of our praise. 
So in this first encounter, we see Andrew and John. They, st- they what? They, they stop following John the Baptist, their, their master, their rabbi. And they what? They turn and they follow Jesus. And they call him rabbi. And they attribute him as the Messiah. And now this gets to the second person mentioned in these verses, Simon Peter. Let's read verse, uh, we'll start at verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So we see what? That Andrew tells Simon, his brother, that they found the Messiah. And he brings him to Jesus. And I just want to say something. I don't think Andrew was like this. Hey, hey Simon, you know, we, we found the Messiah. Do you want to see him? I don't know if you want to. Uh, do you have time? Do you want to see him right now? No? Oh, yeah, let's go see him. Let's go. I want, I want to sh- no, for 400 years there's been silence. God stopped using prophets to speak. Then you have John the Baptist that emerges on the scene, starts to, to, to proclaim that the Messiah is coming. He, he brings a, a, a repentance of, a, through baptism to prepare the way for the Messiah. And I could see that Simon and Andrew were waiting and looking for the Messiah. Notice the language. He says to his brother, we found him. I think Andrew's excited. We found the Messiah, Peter the one we've been praying for, the one we've been waiting for, the one we've been hoping for that would come to save us. We found him. Come and meet him. Come and see. In verse 42, we see that Jesus looks at Simon. And I just looked at the Greek a little bit, and it's an intense gaze, that Jesus gazes, he stares, he looks at Simon. It's not like a passing glance. It's not just like a, oh, hey, and then looking down. He's looking at into Peter's eyes, and he gives him a new name. He calls him Cephas, which means Peter. And that translates to stone or to rock. And in this moment, Jesus is giving both us and Peter the future glimpse of what Peter will be. He will be the rock. After following Jesus, after receiving the Holy Spirit, he will be Peter the rock. Unlike his brother Andrew, Simon Peter, again, seems to be the most popular, one of the most popular, well-known disciples. If I had everybody here just take out a piece of paper, you don't, you don't have to do it, and just write down, and I said, write as many disciples as you can. I guarantee Peter would be in your top three that you write. Right? It's just, he, he's so popular, but also because at times we're like, Peter, what are you doing? What? what, what? Like he, just, he, he often does things without thinking, or he speaks before he thinks through something clearly. During Jesus' public ministry, there were times where Peter lived up to his name, and Jesus actually calls him Peter, calls him rock. And then there's often there's times where he fails. And in those moments, Jesus says, Simon. And here's a bit of encouragement. Jesus did not give up on Peter when he failed constantly to live up to his name of being the rock, right? The stone, the rock. In all of his mess-ups, he never gave up on Peter. He never threw him away like used goods and was like, ah, eh, all right, Peter, that's it, I'm, I'm, I'm sick of you. Jesus never did that. If you remember, Peter was the, the only one who had the confidence when they saw Jesus walking on water to say, Jesus, 
command me to come to you and I will. And then he, what, he actually steps out of the boat. You've got to give him a little credit here. He had faith and trust to, to get out of the boat and to walk on water towards Jesus. But just as quickly as he got into the water, how quickly his faith seemingly disappeared. The waves and the wind distracted him and made him afraid, and he starts to sink. And Jesus doesn't let him sink. He pulls him out again. Peter is also the same Peter that we read here, the same one who confesses to Jesus, Jesus, you are the Christ. And then Jesus says, yes, and Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. Right, in that moment, Peter's living up that, he's the rock. A few verses later, Jesus says to his disciples, I'm going to be killed. I will be beaten, I will be killed, I will, I will be dead, and in three days I'll come back again. And Peter says, no, 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 Jesus, that, nope, nope, I will never let you die. And then Jesus actually says, get behind me, Satan. Right, it's a few verses after Peter gets it right, he's the Christ. And now Jesus is saying, get behind me, Satan. Peter's the same one who, what, got his feet washed by Jesus, saw Jesus show love and humility to the disciples, heard Jesus preach to love your neighbor, to love your enemy, and what he says, that a new commandment I give you, that you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. And later that same evening, Peter tries to chop up, or not, he doesn't try to, he tries to kill somebody when they come to arrest Jesus and misses and chops off his ear and Jesus puts his ear back on the guard's head. That's the same Peter that just was told to love, trying to kill people. Same Peter that denied Jesus three times. But then after Jesus is resurrected, he calls Peter back three times. Peter, feed my sheep. Peter, feed my sheep. Peter, feed my sheep. Again, I think Peter, out of the disciples, when we read the Bible, we're like, ah, I would never act like that. I think we're honest. We are Peter a lot of times when we act like that. But despite Peter's failures to live up to his name, the rock, Jesus never abandoned him. Jesus never threw him away. Peter went on to fulfill his new name given to him by Jesus when he received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. He preaches the gospel, and thousands of souls were baptized and added to the church that day. For us, the moment we put our faith in Jesus and we follow him, we don't receive a new physical name. I told this to the youth group here. It's not like before I was a Christian I was called not David, and now that I'm a Christian I'm called David. But rather the Bible's clear that we receive a new heart. We receive a new heart. We go from being children of wrath to what? Children of God. Belonging to the kingdom of darkness, what belonging and walking into the kingdom of light. Being an enemy of God to being a friend of God. Being dead in our sins to alive in Christ. As Peter received the new name from Jesus, we've all received, if you profess to be a Christian and you put your faith in Jesus, you receive a new heart from him. As Mark read in, in 2 Corinthians 5.17 Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And going back to Diedrich Bonhoeffer's quote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. We die to our old nature. We put away our old sinful heart, our sinful habits, and we what? Become a new creation with the power of the Holy Spirit transforming our hearts and our minds, becoming sanctified, becoming more and more like Jesus. As we follow Jesus, we let go of our past and we cling to him, we run to him. We don't try to maintain our old life with our new life. This isn't something that necessarily happens overnight. 
It's not like the moment I come to Christ, I'm going to stop having all the same temptations I had the day before. But it's a continual sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus through the power and the conviction of the Holy Spirit who dwells in our heart, who has regenerated our hearts. We die to ourselves to follow Christ. And getting back to John, we now see a third disciple named Philip. We'll start in verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethesda, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. So now we're at day four, right? If you picked up the next day, day four, we see that Jesus goes north to Galilee and he finds Philip. There's not a lot of information here. We find Philip and he tells Philip, follow me. And we see Philip following Jesus. He follows him and based on verse 45 and whatever conversation or whatever revealing that Jesus had with Philip, Philip knew that this was the Messiah. This was the one the Old Testament speaks and that the Jews are waiting for, that Jesus is he. Again, we see what happens here with Andrew is that Philip goes and tells somebody. He goes and he runs and tells Nathaniel that we found the Christ. We found him. Something about spending time with Jesus for these disciples is stirred up their hearts to what? To go and tell others we found him. Whether it was their excitement, their anticipation, the understanding of who they were talking with. This was not an ordinary man. This was the Messiah. This was God himself, Jesus Christ. And in verse 46, we see that Nathanael is hesitant. Nathanael is doubtful to take Philip at his word. And I want to focus more on Philip's response than Nathanael's response. In light of Nathanael's hesitancy or doubt, right, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's kind of a shot at, at the city of Nazareth. Philip says to him, come and see. Rather than arguing or debating or fighting with Nathanael that Jesus is the Messiah, he what? He invites Nathanael, come and see for yourself. Don't take my word. Come and see. Come meet Jesus. There's a commentary writer that said this. Not very many people have ever been argued into Christianity. Often our arguments, our fights do more harm than good. The only way to convince a man of the supremacy of Christ is to confront him with Christ. Now, I'm not saying don't debate or don't engage in dialogue with unbelievers, and, and I'm not saying that. But I'm talking about yelling, arguing, fighting, that, that type of fighting. As Christians, we, we should not expect that to win souls over to Christ. We can't force anybody. As much as we want to, we can't force anyone to follow Jesus. And many of you are, are parents. I can now relate to your fear. Right? My fear is I, I want Naya to follow Jesus. I can't force her to. It's, a, it's something she has to come to herself. It's her own faith that saves her, not me and Stephanie's faith. Again, as Christians, rather than arguing, fighting, violently just kind of being 
snippy with somebody, point them to who Christ is and what he's done for sinners. Whether that's sharing your testimony, whether that's sharing scripture. And I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon. You've probably heard it before. The word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. Again, as Christians, our calling is to point others to Christ, to share our faith with them. But let me just say, we're not responsible for their souls. We're not. We're responsible for sharing the gospel, but we can't force them to repent. We can't force them to follow Jesus. That's on their hearts. That's not up to us. There's, there's times where I walk away from conversations. I'm like, man, I'm such a failure. I could have saved this person, and I just selfishly chose not to. Right? When you start to think that way, you, you, you think, oh, how powerful am I that I can change someone's soul and their heart? Only God can do that. Even in all his excitement, Philip, or I should say this, even in all his excitement, Nathaniel's hesitancy, Nathaniel's doubt to take Philip at his word it didn't rob Philip of his joy. I don't, I don't know if you, if you caught that. He encourages Nathaniel to go to Jesus and see for himself. There's a lot of times, and I'm guilty of this, where Stephanie will tell me good news. And based on how I react, which sometimes is great and I'm excited, there are other times I'm not, and what it does is it robs her of her joy. Because right? what you're doing is you have all this anticipation, I can't wait to tell my husband, I can't wait to tell David, Dave, you'll never believe it, and if I just go... Yeah, so what? Right? It, it robs, and I'm sure you've experienced this, your, your joy gets robbed. But I see Philip, Nathaniel's doubt and hesitancy did not rob him of his joy. He doesn't say, oh, Nathaniel, oh, you're right, you know, maybe it wasn't the Messiah. No, we see him saying, Nathaniel, come and see Jesus. Come and meet him, talk to him. And next we're going to see, if you have your notes, number four, we're going to see Nathaniel's and the last disciple mentioned, Nathanael's encounter with Jesus. We'll start at verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to Jesus, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. As Nathanael's making his way to Jesus, Jesus sees him and exclaims something. He says, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Now what Jesus is saying, it's, it's a compliment to Nathanael's faith. He's saying that Nathanael is a true Jew, a true believer of the true God, who has genuine faith in Yahweh. He's not a hypocrite like the spiritual leaders were and became the Pharisees. He's saying, Nathanael, you are a faithful Jew who's worshiping Yahweh, the true living God. He's also not saying that you're perfect. He's saying you have faith, and your faith is correct. Your faith is right. And Nathaniel's response is probably how we would respond if we're being honest. He says, how do you know me? Right? Who, who told you about me, Jesus? What did Philip say? What, 
Philip, what did you tell Jesus about me? It better be good. You know, what, what did, how do you know me, Jesus, that you can say this claim about me? And he says, before Philip called you, this is 48, you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Right? There's, there's one line that Jesus says, and then Nathaniel does a complete 180, an opposite. Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Nathaniel now all of a sudden is saying, you are the Messiah, you are God, the king of Israel. I just did a little bit of research on fig trees in the Bible and specifically in the Old Testament. Whenever fig trees are mentioned in 1 Kings and in Micah chapter 4, they represent peace, security, comfort, safety. It's as if you, under a long day of, of work and everything's good, it's like satisfaction under the fig leaves. Both of those verses in, in 1 Kings and Micah, they talk about that when you're under the fig tree, it's to be safe. It's to be secure. There's peace. There's no worries when you're resting under the shadows of the leaves. You're relaxing in the coolness of the shade. Now, again, we don't know what this meant for Nathaniel. It doesn't tell us, but we see what happened after Jesus says it. For whatever reason, when, Nathan, when Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree, that stood out for Nathaniel. Now, again, I'll, I'll move over here, right? The Bible's word of God's here. I'm over here. Some scholars and, and Bible commentators have said they believe that maybe under the fig trees where Nathaniel stood and sat and prayed to the Lord asking for the Messiah to come. Maybe under the fig trees where he read or, or reflected and meditated on the Old Testament of the coming of the Messiah. We, we don't know that for sure. We don't. That's not in God's word. It's nice to think that way. We don't know for sure. But what we do know is that what Jesus said changed Nathaniel's heart and his life. From what we have read, Jesus wasn't like physically off in the distance, like hiding behind a bush and was like, okay, I see Nathaniel under the fig tree. What we see here is a supernatural, omniscient knowledge, really, that Jesus is God with the omniscience of seeing Nathaniel even before Philip came to him. Right? If, if, you, if you don't think, sometimes you'll just overskip that. Right? A, a regular human can't do that. I can't see what's going on over there behind the walls and behind a different town, different area. I can't. I can't look back or look forward in time. We see here Jesus is revealing omniscience. He's revealing divinity, that he is God. And what convinced Nathaniel to follow Jesus? It wasn't Philip. It was Jesus. It was Jesus. Again, as that encouragement, we're not responsible for someone's decision, for someone's heart to receive Jesus. We're responsible to give them the gospel, to point them in love to the truth, to encourage and to pray for them, yes. But that's God's job through the power of the Holy Spirit. We cannot make dead hearts alive again. Only the Holy Spirit can. As Christians, we should be bringing, we should be wanting to bring the gospel. And, and this is hard. It's intimidating. It's scary. It, it, it makes me nervous. We should be wanting to bring the gospel to our families, to our communities, to everyone that we see. <clears throat> if you notice Nathaniel's answer to Jesus, he gives him three titles. He calls Jesus rabbi, which is teacher. He calls him the son of God, which simplistic means that he's God himself, same, shares the same nature, essence of God. And he calls him the king of Israel, 
which is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one the Jews have been waiting for. There's no mistake, after his encounter with Jesus, Nathanael knew that Jesus is the one that Israel has been waiting for. Since Genesis chapter 3 to now, Jesus is the one that Israel has been looking for. In the end of this passage, <clears throat> it ends with Jesus saying this to Nathanael. In verse 51, Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And rather go into that for 15, 20 minutes to talk about what, what that could mean, I just want to simply put it this way. Jesus says, if you think what I just said was impressive, just wait. Just wait. You haven't seen anything yet. As Jesus calls his first disciples to himself, we see that their faith led them to follow Jesus. It also led them to share the good news with those who were around them. Their excitement of their conversation with Jesus, their time with Jesus, transformed their hearts. It led them to what? To go out, but to also know that Jesus is truly the promised Messiah, the one they've been praying for, the one that John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as I wrap up in John chapter 1, there were eight titles or eight names of Jesus found in this chapter. And I just want to read them off. We read Jesus being called Lagos, which means word. We see Jesus being called the Lamb of God, the Son of God, Rabbi, Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, King of Israel, and Son of Man. What John, the author, the gospel writer, is getting at is that Jesus is the eternal God. Don't take my word for it. Look at the testimony of John the Baptist, of Andrew, of John, of Simon Peter, of Philip, of Nathaniel. Look at their testimony. These were eyewitnesses that you could go to in this day and talk to. Jesus is the eternal God who has always existed from eternity past and always will exist eternity future. He came down from heaven. He dwelt among his creation. If you remember that, Jesus, the creator, enters into creation. Jesus, the eternal one outside of time, enters into time. He came as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. John the Baptist, Andrew, John, Philip, Peter, Nathaniel, all bear witness and testify that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. And for Christians, that's our testimony and our belief as well, that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is our Savior, that he died on our cross, three days later he rose again, and he has invited us to follow him, a call to die to ourselves and to follow him in his way. Let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you came as the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. You showed us grace. You didn't come here to save us because we were so good, because we were so welcoming, because we loved you perfectly. You came despite us, even at that moment, being enemies of God, to come and to show us your amazing love and your amazing grace. Jesus, I just pray that even in our own hearts as we head back home this week, we can just reflect on who you are, that you're the Messiah, that you are God, and you've called us to have a personal relationship with you, that you always constantly love us, 
that as your word says, that if we confess our sins before you, you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. That even in our sins, we can run back to you and ask for forgiveness. I pray that as we reflect on your amazing grace and mercy, that you give us a heart to tell others about you. I'm not up here preaching and saying I'm the best evangelizer. I'm scared. I'm nervous when it comes about. I'm shy about it. But Lord, I pray that you give us all a heart of love, a love to see a soul who without you will spend an eternity in hell. So Jesus, we praise you as our risen Lord and Savior. And as we're about to sing this song, I pray that as we come to the altar, we remember that, Father, your arms are open wide, that forgiveness was bought with Jesus Christ's blood alone on that cross. We love you. In Jesus, your name we pray. Amen.